Hi friends, and welcome back to another episode of The Scoop. I'm your host, Sam Miller. Today's episode is the second episode in the People You Should Know series. Last week, we talked about Ma Rainey, who is a legendary figure in the blues industry. And this week, we're covering another musical legend. As I mentioned last week, the people I'll be including in this series are people who have really paved the way in entertainment and within pop culture that rarely, if ever, get the credit that they deserve. So like I mentioned last week too, um, the 1619 Project from the New York Times has inspired both last week's episode and this week's episode. Um, and if you're not familiar with the 1619 Project, it's really interesting and it's now available in a book. Um, I saw it at Target a few weeks ago, so there's that. But it's a compilation of writings that are about the early foundations of America and suggesting that we should not think of 1776 as the start of America, but 1619, and it's put together by Nicole Hannah-Jones and many other historians and writers. And there's a specific chapter, Why Is Everyone Always Stealing Black Music by Wesley Morris, that inspired the conversations held in today's episode as well as last week's. The chapter includes a lot of really interesting information about the early days of blues and rock and musical foundations with artists such as Chuck Berry, Ma Rainey, Sister Rosetta Tharp, and Bessie Smith. And I think about this chapter a lot, and I say that sincerely. I know some people, like, they'll say stuff like, oh, I think about it all the time, but they really don't mean it. But I really do. As an avid consumer of music, particularly rock music, I think it'd be irresponsible for me to not know the origins of where the music that I like comes from. And even if you listen to popular music, like, all of it stems back to the roots in blues and rock. And so today we're covering someone who is incredible. Sister Rosetta Tharp coined the godmother of rock and roll as attributed by most or the patron saint of rock and roll as attributed by Afropunk.com. And you'll learn more about her and her music and her life here in a moment. But I also want to cover inspiration within music. And it's no secret that most musicians get their start because they were inspired by someone else. But at what point does inspiration become theft? including some conversations about artists blatant theft of music from black artists. So if this sounds interesting to you, make sure you stick around. We'll be right back after this short break. Rosetta Newbin was born on March 20th, 1915 in Cotton Plant, Arkansas, where she was the daughter of Katie Bell Newbin and Willis Atkins. Now, there are two researchers who have concluded that that's not true um, as far as her birth name and her mother's birth name. They believe that her birth name was Rosether Atkins, I'm sorry if I butchered that, or Atkinson, and her mother's name was Katie Harper. And like I said last week, the inconsistencies aren't like a huge point of concern, just something interesting. So very little is known about her father, Willis other than that he was also a singer. Like her father, Rosetta's mother, was also a musician. She was a singer, she played the mandolin, and she really encouraged Rosetta to get into music. And it's cited that she, being Rosetta, first picked up a guitar at the age of four. And her first stage name, if you could call it that, was Little Rosetta Newbin. And even at the age of four, when she would sing or play guitar, she was considered a musical prodigy. Rosetta's mother, Katie, was active in the Church of God in Christ, and if you're not familiar with the Church of God in Christ, or Kajik, 
I think that's how you pronounce the acronym. It was founded by Charles Harrison Mason, who had some fairly radical views, especially during this time of a woman's place in the church. He believed that women should be able to dance and sing and teach in the church, which was not a widely held view in the 1910s. And keep in mind, women still couldn't vote and had a lot of things that they couldn't do. So this was kind of an interesting perspective, especially within the context of the world they were living in at the time. And because of her position within the church, Rosetta's mother was able to get Rosetta engaged in music, particularly praise music, and she joined her mother to be a part of an evangelical musical group that traveled to churches throughout the South, and their shows would be half music and half sermon, and audiences were just stunned by how much talent Rosetta had. I mean, how often do you see a little kid just like killing it on a musical instrument in general? It's usually pretty questionable performance, but her abilities were considered a miracle. Around the 1920s, Rosetta and her mother moved to Chicago, and while in Chicago, she'd perform in religious concerts and would occasionally travel to religious conventions across the country, and it was around this time that she started to make a name for herself. And even though people really enjoyed her music and her, female guitarists were rare, like very rare, and black female guitarists were even rarer. In 1934, when she was 19, she married Thomas Thorpe, who was at the time working as a preacher, and it's said that he was already traveling with both Rosetta and her mother on tour. Now, Rosetta and Thomas were not together for very long, only a few years, but when she was creating a stage name for herself, she took his last name and put her own spin on it, calling herself Sister Rosetta Tharp for the rest of her career. And in 1938, the two split up and Tharp moved to New York City with her mother, and this is where things took off and never stopped. So in 1938, Tharp joined the Cotton Club Review in New York City, which was a club that was especially popular during the Prohibition era. And one thing you should know about Tharp's music is she often tried to mix religious and secular themes into her music. She didn't want to strictly stick to like one thing, and this made those within the gospel crowd nervous and like hesitant to her music, but as you'll learn throughout this episode, she was incredibly creative and persistent and really liked to play around with her style. Also in 1938, at the age of 23, she recorded for the first time four tracks for Decca Records, who was owned by Universal Music Group, or UMG, if you're someone who works in any type of audio or media production. You know those three letters well. Anyway. Those tracks were Rock Me, That's All, My Man and I, and The Lonesome Road. And all four of these songs were instant hits, but Rock Me in particular is one of the things she's known best for. This song inspired Little Richard and Elvis. From here, she signed a seven-year contract with Millinder, and her music really got the church crowd mad. They had never heard religious lyrics paired with secular sounds, and especially not with the use of an electric guitar. However, those outside of the church fell in love with her music. And in December of the same year, she performed with John Hammond's Spiritual to Swing at Carnegie Hall, which helped her gain even more popularity. Because Tharp opted to do something that had never been done before, performing her gospel music alongside the blues in nightclubs, this had a lot of conservative women within religious circles really frown upon her and her music, and it took her quite a while, and some will say she never did, to rebuild those relationships. 
Now I was gonna, I was gonna try to play a segment of Rock Me, but in knowing that her music is owned by you know who, I'm not gonna cross that territory and get this episode removed. Um, her music, however, is on YouTube and Spotify. Go listen to it, seriously. Circa 1943, she considered making her music strictly gospel, but contractually, she just did not have that choice. That was not what the label assigned her to do. And because she still wanted to perform gospel, she'd often find herself performing gospel in a nightclub where there were also showgirls in barely any clothing performing. And I'm sure, <laughs> sure you can imagine how those conservative women in religious circles took that clutching their pearls right but it didn't really matter what they thought because her fame was only growing and in the 1940s she collaborated with the men who dominated the industry duke ellington among others and she even did a performance with the jordanaires where she performed for integrated audiences however keep in mind it's still the 1940s and segregation is in full force despite her fame most hotels and restaurants were segregated so she'd have to sleep on buses and go to the back door of a restaurant to pick up her food while on the road because she wasn't allowed inside. And despite everything that was going on, her passion and her spirit could not be broken. During World War II, Tharp became a legend among black soldiers who were fighting in the war. Post-war, Tharp teamed up with Sammy Price to create Strange Things Happening Every Day, which is probably my favorite song from her and one of her most well-known. In the song, it makes reference to a lot of the strange things happening in the world at the time. A lot went down in the 40s. I mean, obviously the war, but a lot went down in the 40s. This song is considered to be one of the first ever. And when I say ever, when I say ever, I mean ever. E-V-E-R, <laughs> ever. Rock and roll recordings. And it is the first gospel song to reach the top 10 in the R&B genre. By the age of 30, she had been through two marriages, including the one with Thorpe that we talked about earlier, and various relationships with men and women. Within the industry, Tharp was pretty open about her sexuality, but it was largely kept a secret from the public, similar to Rainey. In 1946, Tharp watched her future partner, Marie Knight, perform at a Mahalia. I'm sorry if I butchered that. Jackson concert and was in awe of Knight's talent and the two recorded a few songs together including Up Above My Head. Throughout the 1940s the two went on tour together and took control of their business decisions. Those within the gospel circles of course had to just run their mouth again and were creating rumors that the two were together in a romantic and sexual relationship, but both women wrote off the claims as just gossip. But they were definitely a thing. So picture this, it's 1940 something. Two queer black women in a relationship on tour together performing for huge audiences. This is radical and it's so special. In 1949, Mahalia Jackson rose to fame above Tharp and Knight and put both of them kind of in a difficult position to have to make some tough decisions. Knight decided that she wanted to go solo to pursue pop music and around the same time, Knight lost both her mother and her children in a house fire. The two split ways, both within their career and romantically, and in the same year, 
Tharp held a concert at what's known as the Altria Theater, and she performed with the Twilight Singers, and from that show, she renamed them the Rosettes, who would become her backup singers. Now, this next part, you're gonna be like, yeah, whatever, we know already. Tharp was in a very male-dominated industry, and in particularly, male-dominated genre. Today, a lot of artists will get compared to one another about who's better at this or that, but Tharp was often compared to her male counterparts within the industry, and when she would get compared, she would say, can't no man play like me, I play better than a man. Facts. In 1951, Tharp then married her manager, Russell Morrison, and what's really interesting about this marriage was that their wedding took place at a baseball stadium, Griffith Stadium in Washington, D.C., which is unfortunately not there anymore. It was demolished in 1965. But at her wedding, over 20,000 people, who paid, by the way, were in attendance, and their wedding also included a concert, which was recorded and later released as an album. That's iconic. <laughs> I don't care what anyone has to say about it, that is iconic. Shortly after this album was released, she started to fall out of popularity with the American public, with artists like Elvis and Buddy Holly and Bill Haley taking over the music industry. And what do those three have in common? White men in rock. And a lot of these artists, particularly white artists who emerge in the rock genre of the 1950s and even the 1960s, are undeniably influenced by artists like Sister Rosetta Tharp and Chuck Berry, whether they will admit to it or not, and most of them would never admit to it. Following this, in 1956, she recorded a gospel album with the Harmonizing Four titled Gospel Train. In 1957, she booked a month-long tour of the UK, and in 1964, she toured alongside Muddy Waters, Otis Spann, Ransom Noling, and Little Willie Smith, Reverend Gary Davis, Cousin Joe, Sonny Terry, and Brownie McGee for the Blues and Gospel Caravan. And in May of that same year, the caravan recorded a concert at a train station in Manchester where they were in one side of the platform performing with the audience on the other. And this is where Tharp's iconic Didn't It Rain performance takes place. She enters in on a horse in this gorgeous coat. It's on YouTube. Go watch it, like immediately after this episode. It is such a fun performance. I am always enamored with female guitarists, specifically female rock guitarists, and it is so incredible to watch her play. So just go watch it. Anyway, following this performance, she continued to tour throughout Europe pretty much until she died. Her last known show was in Copenhagen in 1970, but after that, she moved back to the States where she lived a fairly reserved life until her death in 1973. She lived in Philadelphia with her mother, and like I said, in 1973, she died due to complications of a stroke. She was 58. And one thing I learned in research that I had no idea about, but it just kind of shows how things can come full circle, in an article from afropunk.com written by Aaron White, Marie Knight, yes, the Marie Knight from earlier, came to do Tharp's hair and makeup for her burial. Additionally, her grave went unmarked for over 30 years. And it wasn't until 2008, 2008, that she had a proper headstone. One thing 
I really want to do with this series is of course focus on the lives and the accomplishments of people that are covered, but I also want to discuss their legacy. And just because they've passed on doesn't mean their spirit is dead, and that is especially true for Sister Rosetta Tharp. On July 15, 1998, the U.S. Postal Service issued a 32-cent commemorative stamp after an increase in interest in her work by the general public. She was a part of the Class of 2018 of the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame and was cited as an early influence artist. Both Little Richard and Johnny Cash have cited Tharp as being their favorite artist as a child, which was incredibly influential to them, as well as Tina Turner, Meatloaf, and Karen Carpenter. And what's messed up to me, and I hope other people will see the issue here, and of course, I'm not dogging on these artists, because, you know, they're, they're musical legends in their own right, and they're not the ones making the decisions. But, get a load of this. Little Richard and Elvis both inducted to the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame in 1986, Tina Turner in 1991, and Johnny Cash in 1992. Why did it take until 2018, 2018, for her to finally receive the recognition she deserved when artists she influences and which pause? Johnny Cash even talked about how influential she was to him in his induction speech into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. Why did it take until 2018 for her to get inducted when those who she influenced got inducted long before her? Like, what? I, I don't understand. Another aim of this series is to highlight the just insanity that has gone on over the years of these figures not getting the attention and respect that they deserve. This is also my official push. There needs to be a biopic about her life, Netflix, or whoever. Get on that. So Let's talk about musical connections. Artists like Aretha Franklin have also cited stars in blues and rock to be inspirational to her, especially Sister Rosetta Tharp. One of my favorite bands is Queen. Hear me out. Freddie Mercury, lead singer of Queen, attributes his love for music and the artists who inspired him to ever get into music as being Ella Fitzgerald, Aretha Franklin, and Jimi Hendrix. Another one of my favorite bands is Kiss. Both Ace and Paul from Kiss attribute Hendrix and B.B. King as some of their biggest inspirations. Let's bring it together. If not for Tharp, there'd be no Franklin. My favorite band, Queen, may have never existed. Additionally, Lady Gaga cites Queen as one of her biggest inspirations. If not for Queen, if not for Franklin, if not for Tharp, who knows if there'd be Lady Gaga? I mean, let's take it even a step further. I saw in an interview that Olivia Rodrigo and Madison Beer have cited Lady Gaga as being a huge inspiration to them. No Tharp, no Franklin, no BB King, no Hendrix, means no Queen, no Gaga, no Rodrigo. I mean, and every artist has had someone who's come before them inspire them. But sometimes when an artist is so inspired by something, it can lead to theft. 
And that's why artists, whether in music or dance or whatever, have a responsibility to give credit where it's due. The raising of individual creativity, expression to the highest place within the aesthetic of a song. The music is creative and knows no limits. A lot of artists will feed upon creativity, making it their own, but giving no attribution to the musicians who paved the way for rock and roll. And this is a quote from Morris from the 1619 Project. I am for sure in the business of putting artists on blast. So let's talk about Led Zeppelin. They are considered to be one of the most well-known rock bands of all time. And before the stands, come for me, which I know they will. I do like some of their songs. I would not really consider myself a fan, but we've got to talk about this. And yes, I know a lot of well-known publications are on the same page and are not letting people forget about it, but I do think it ties well with this topic. It's very apparent throughout the discography of Led Zeppelin that their music takes heavy influences of blues. And in their song, I Can't Quit You Baby, the influence is undeniable. And the issue is not influence. I mean, I just listed off all these people who were inspired and influenced by black artists in early rock and blues. But where the issue lies is also best put by Morris. He states, we're also talking about what the borrowers and collaborators don't want to or can't lift. Centuries of weight, of atrocity we've never sufficiently worked through. The blackness you know is beyond theft because it's too real, too rich, and too heavy to steal. According to Rolling Stone magazine, Zeppelin regularly stole from other artists, including Muddy Waters and Willie Dixon and many other black artists. And in response to being called out, lead singer Robert Plant stated, Well, you only get caught when you're successful. That's the game. And when they would get called out, band members would literally just blame another one. Be like, sorry, not my problem. Which is clearly not an appropriate response. I mean, I don't want to misquote or like put, you know, like make up a situation, but I'm fairly certain in one of these stories that I read, there's a quote from either Plant or Jimmy Page where one of the two of them is putting the blame on the other for forgetting to change the lyric of a song that they stole and tried to play off as their own. What? And nine times out of ten, they never really apologized or even addressed the situation. And the one time they did was a good 30 years after the song was released. But they alluded to the idea that they might have taken inspiration from Lily Dixon. One of the most vivid examples from the band is with their song, Whole Lot of Love. If you haven't heard it, listen to probably like, I don't know, like, 30, 45 seconds of it, get a feel for the song. If you're already on Spotify, just pause this podcast and go listen to it, because I know for a fact, if I included even a third of a second of it in this episode, this episode would get taken down in about two seconds. So go do that and come back. Okay, if you're here, you've listened to it, you're familiar with it, you have a feel for the song. The next song I want you to listen to is You Need Love, performed by Muddy Waters and written by Willie Dixon. Sorry to give you homework, 
but I can't afford to get sued over copyright. I mean, I might have a defamation lawsuit coming for me. Who knows? Okay, you've heard both songs similar, right? It should be known that You Need Love was released eight years prior. I mean, dare to say it's almost like listening to the same song? I mean, the melody. Look at the material. It's the same. One thing you should know is that in 1985, Willie Dixon um, was like, hey, Robert, Robbie, Rob, Bud, uh, you for sure ripped off Muddy and I, and it's not cool for you to profit off our work. So, bam, lawsuit. And there's a bit more to this story. And, you know, you can look it up if you want to, but Zeppelin did lose the lawsuit, and the unfortunate part of it all is that You Need Love saw nowhere near the success of Whole Lot of Love. Like I said, artists have a responsibility to give credit where it's due, even and especially if you're ridiculously famous. That's why artists such as Sister Rosetta Tharp, Ma Rainey, Bessie Smith, Chuck Berry, don't get the credit that they fully deserve for shaping modern music, shaping the rock industry, shaping the blues industry, and it's a shame. So if you like what you heard today, make sure that you're following us on whatever platform you're listening to this episode on, so that you'll be notified when a new episode is up. We post pretty exclusively on Fridays. Sometimes there's a random episode in the middle of the week. So if you're not following, you won't know that it's there. Additionally, make sure that you're following us on all the socials at the Scoop WSAM for extras from the show as well as updates. We have merch. If you missed out on the sale that we had this week, what a shame, but we have new merch coming soon. New exclusive Valentine's Day merch coming very soon so be on the lookout for it should be up sometime next week y'all are gonna live you're gonna cry maybe throw up i don't know something when you see it it's lit you can find the link for our merch store and our link tree which is in the bio of all of our socials and i think that's about it see you same time same place next week for a brand new episode of the scoop talk to you later